On a night just like this one, four young people were listening to a podcast just like this one in an abandoned lighthouse, not unsimilar to this one. There were three boys and a young girl, all of whom had been friends for years and had long planned to meet in this abandoned lighthouse as a reunion in celebration of their first summer back from college. The dimly lit lighthouse provided shelter from a raging storm outside as they waited for their fifth friend to arrive from the local insane asylum, where he had spent the past year. Gee, Bradley, the most popular of the bunch, said, I wonder what's taking scary, insane Terry so long. I don't think he likes that name, said George, the most empathetic of them. Shut up, George. It's his legal name said Charlotte, who was often the one who provided such details. Jerome, the fourth of them, said nothing, as he had done for so many years. A phone sat in between the group, and they sat around it in a semicircle as the high-definition speakers fought against the raging wind and rain just outside the lighthouse walls. This podcast doesn't seem to be going anywhere, George said. Wait, wait. It's going to get good soon, I promise. The good part is coming up. Just like, after this out-of-character political rant, said Bradley. Just then, the military-grade flashlight went out, and the door to the lighthouse slammed open, the wind whipping and howling outside. I'm here, called out a voice. I'm here at last. A low chuckle followed. At last. At last. At last. Scary and seeing Terry, Bradley called out. Is that you? And if it is, how do you feel about that name? I mean, be honest with us, George called out. That's not Terry, Charlotte said. Jerome pointed his eyes wide at the door behind where the figure stood, nailed to the rotted wooden planks of the lighthouse door, was the body of scary, insane Terry. Welcome, listeners, to the Frightened Times, here on Zero Credits. I'm Haunted Henry. And I'm John. And together we're here to bring you the frightenest, scariest things that we can imagine. Tales to crush your spine. It's like tales from the crypt, only they're from real life. You know, real life's kind of a crypt sometimes. You're right. You're right. I actually have experienced that, like the the pressure and the confines of being trapped in a crypt. You know, the the pressure is in confines of being trapped in a crypt. Very scary, actually. Do not like to think about it. Yeah. Are you also claustrophobic? Uh, I'm claustrophobic in very specific circumstances. Uh, I'm all right in in rooms, but uh, I went spelunking one time and had to like crawl through a five-foot tunnel the size of, like, the lid of a five-gallon bucket, and That's if right. I got trapped, I would have died. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think you've told that story before on the podcast, but uh, I'm, a, I'm also claustrophobic to the, to the point where I need my back against the wall of an elevator so I can see the room that we're working with. 
Yeah, small spaces, it's it's a big area of fear for me under certain circumstances. Ugh. Yeah. I was gonna throw it to you, and I never did. Should I throw it to you? Throw it to me, Henry. Here's a spooky tale from Creepy John. Yes, I, Creepy John. Something that I would like to highlight in the coming weeks is... uh Stories that I find uh, fascinating, and I know that there's uh, a lot of urban legends and, and scary stories out there, but I think that the things that are the scariest are based uh, entirely on real events. Uh, unsolved mysteries and, and spooky stories, and some that I think are not very well covered, and I'd like to present them to you, the listeners, for your spooky pleasure. You're speaking my language because I love unsolved, unresolved mysteries. That, that, that type of thing that happens in real life where people just can't explain or don't know what happened. So th- this is, this is great, John. Well, tuck in because we're about to talk about the disappearance of the Eileen Moore Lighthouse Keepers. The Mysterious Disappearance of the Eileen Moore Lighthouse Keepers by Ben Johnson, published on Historic UK. On the 26th December 1900, a small ship was making its way to the Flannan Islands. Its destination was the lighthouse at Eileen Moore, a remote island which, apart from its lighthouse keepers, was completely uninhabited. Although uninhabited, the island had always sparked people's interest. It is named after St. Flannan, a 6th century Irish bishop who later became a saint. He built a chapel on the island, and for centuries shepherds used to bring over sheep to the island to graze, but would never stay the night, fearful of the spirits believed to haunt that remote spot. Captain James Harvey was in charge of the ship, which was also carrying Joseph Moore, a replacement lighthouse keeper. As the ship reached the landing platform, Captain Harvey was surprised not to see anyone waiting for their arrival. He blew his horn and sent up a warning flare to attract attention. There was no response. Joseph Moore then rode ashore and ascended up the steep set of stairs that led up to the lighthouse. According to reports from Moore himself, the replacement lighthouse keeper suffered an overwhelming sense of foreboding on his long walk up to the top of the cliff. Once at the lighthouse, Moore noticed something was immediately wrong. The door to the lighthouse was unlocked, and in the entrance hall two of the three oilskin coats were missing. Moore continued on to the kitchen area, where he found half-eaten food and an overturned chair, almost as if someone had jumped from their seat in a hurry. To add to this peculiar scene, the kitchen clock had also stopped, as had all the clocks in the lighthouse. Moore continued to search the rest of the lighthouse, but found no sign of the lighthouse keepers. He ran back to the ship to inform Captain Harvey, who subsequently ordered a search of the islands for the missing men. No one was found. Harvey quickly sent back a telegram to the mainland, which in turn was forwarded to the Northern Lighthouse Board headquarters at Edinburgh. The telegraph read, A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Duckett, Marshall, and the occasional have disappeared from the island. On our arrival there this afternoon, no sign of life was to be seen on the island. Fired a rocket, but, as no response was made, managed to land Moore, who went up to the station but found no keepers there. The clock was stopped, and other signs indicated the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliff or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. Night coming on, 
We could not wait to make something as to their fate. I have left Moore, McDonald, Bowie Master, and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. I will not return to Oban until I hear from you. I have repeated this wire to Muirhead in case you are not at home. I will remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes, if you wish to wire me. A few days later, Robert Muirhead, the board's superintendent, who both super-recruited and knew all three men personally, departed for the island to investigate the disappearances. His investigation of the lighthouse found nothing over and above what Moore had already reported. That is, except for the lighthouse's log. Muirhead immediately noticed that the last few days of entries were unusual. On the 12th December, Thomas Marshall, the second assistant, wrote of severe winds, the likes of which I have never seen before in 20 years. He also noticed that James Duckett, the principal keeper, had been very quiet, and that the third assistant, William MacArthur, had been crying. What is strange about the final remark was that William MacArthur was a seasoned mariner, and was known on the Scottish mainland as a tough brawler. Why would he be crying about a storm? Log entries on the 13th December stated that the storm was still raging and that all three men had been praying. But why would three experienced lighthouse keepers safely situated on a brand new lighthouse that was 150 feet above sea level be praying for a storm to stop? They should have been perfectly safe. Even more peculiar is that there were no reported storms in the area on the 12th, 13th, and 14th of December. In fact, the weather was calm, and the storms that were to batter the island didn't hit until December 17th. Muirhead's attention turned to the remaining oilskin coat that had been left in the entrance hall. Why, in the bitter cold of winter, had one of the lighthouse keepers ventured out without his coat? Furthermore, why had all three lighthouse staff left their posts at the same time, when rules and regulations strictly forbid it? The final log entry was made on 15th December. It simply read, Storm ended. Sea calm. God is over all. Creepy stuff, man. Yeah, uh, uh, there are a few uh, spelling errors in the article uh, that I was not aware of when I read through it the first time. Uh, but it is, uh, it's, it's extremely creepy stuff. I, I've heard of this legend before because I, I frequent the sites that detail these unresolved mysteries. And um, this is actually one of my favorite urban legends or, or unresolved mysteries just because of the... I don't know. I think I tend to romanticize lighthouse keeper life. I think everyone does. Lighthouse keeper life is a romantic life. And this one is so strange because the 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 island could be seen from a nearby town. So any weather that the log reports should have been experienced by the town too, right? One would imagine. And yet the uh, the log details this storm that ranges multiple days uh, that seemingly should not they should not have been experiencing the two things that really stick out to me about this are two things that i, I suppose aren't very well corroborated but it's the fact that only two of three issued oilskin coats were gone and it was the middle of december and it, the fact that the final entry read, Sea Storm ended, Sea Calm, God is overall. Yeah, the fact that one oil skin was left behind suggests an emergency. You know, something something dire was happening that need, needed a quick response. 
so that an oil skin would be left behind. There's no other excuse, right? And from what I understand, I was reading this on another website, but uh, and this might be apocryphal because it wasn't sourced, but it was saying that uh, nowhere else in the logbook had God specifically been mentioned. They didn't get the idea that the person writing the entries was particularly pious and that this was the first mention of God whatsoever in the log. And and that would suggest some type of weird fervor taking over at least one of the lighthouse keepers, if not all three. Because one, you, you one did, would imagine. You, yeah, you, you did mention that all three people, all three keepers were praying. Yeah, all three keepers were praying. Uh, one was crying. And, and these were veteran lighthouse keepers. These weren't newbies. They, they're not greenhorns. They, they should all be experienced. They should all be... They should all have the experience to weather any sort of weather. Especially since I believe they were all uh, veteran uh, sailors as well as lighthouse keepers. So, so then they should be accustomed to worse situations than anything they could experience mm-hmm. on, on land or, or on at least solid rock. And I think one thing's for certain, Henry... What's for certain, John? We will never know what happened to those three men. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, we're not gonna we're not gonna find the answer now for sure. And I, th- this is a lot of naysayers like to to join in and say, "Oh yeah, well, the existence of this natural phenomenon would explain it." But I don't think that's the point of the spirit of the mystery. Yeah, the point of the spirit of the mystery is to. Uh, embrace the circumstances under which it happened. You know, uh, there, there's something to be said for solving something like this. But the, the I guess the utility we get out of these things uh, is we get to experience this this tremendous mystery. And it's all over the place with disappearances. Like, the unsolved mysteries that are the most fascinating are all disappearance-related. Yeah, and, and the solution or the ex- the answer to what happened is usually disappointing or it's too ordinary like if you think of the malaysian flight that disappeared a lot of people are like well yeah it's in the ocean well that's not as exciting as if you leave it unresolved we can imagine what happened to it yeah it's it's scary stuff yeah I like leaving disappearances in the past, such as your the lightkeeper, the lightkeeper, the lighthouse keepers. I like keeping those mysteries mysterious. And I mean, I guess that's something that speaks to the root of all fear itself, is that fear is uncertainty. I don't think fear ever comes from a pure certainty. I think that certainty comes with a certain kind of peace. Not- that's interesting that you're you're thinking of you're you're talking about where fear comes from because that ties directly into what I want to talk about tonight. Ooh, Ooh spooky coincidences. Because I want to talk about where fear comes from. Like I want to try to get to the root of fear itself. I feel like many have tried and many have failed. What makes your effort any different? Because I'm going to try to examine fear in an involuntary subject. Oh? That's you. Oh, shit. Because you didn't volunteer for this, but you're going to participate. That's right, I really didn't. Yes. 
Um, but let's start with some background information. I've got the Fear Wikipedia page up right now. And let's just read a little bit about what, what Wikipedia says fear is. Uh, fear is a feeling induced by perceived danger or threat that occurs in certain types of organisms which causes a change in metabolic and organ functions and ultimately a change in behavior such as fleeing, hiding, or freezing from perceived traumatic events. Mm. Fear in human beings may may occur in response to a specific stimulus occurring in the present or anticipation or expectation of a future threat perceived as a risk to body or life. And now I can see how that can perhaps check out. Yes, I feel like this is fear on like a primal or basic level, you know? That all of our primal fears come from a risk to body or life. We're, we're, we're afraid of personal risk to our our human body and the perceived notion of a sh- of like a shortened life. I mean, uh, I I can see how that could check out, but I'm afraid of certain things that uh, that aren't necessarily you know harmful to my body. Now, now I I I think this is where society comes in. Because there's this weird thing, like, if this is true, if what I just read was 100% true, why are people afraid of public speech? There, yeah, no, no one's going to, like, throw a spear at you and, like, kill you for giving a bad speech. It, it, exactly. There, there's no physical harm threat to you for public speaking. So it, there's this weird moment where society moves in that translates sort of, like, Think of it as a symbolic death mm. where a public failure means a symbolic death for you as an individual in your public sphere. So maybe it's not so much a a threat of harm to our bodies, but a, a threat of harm to just ourselves, whether that's our, our standing or our mind or our body. I, well, I, I I think the standing part is sort of like a representation of like your public self. And society has reached a point where we're no longer, well, to an extent, there, there's an astra, a huge asterisk here. To an extent, we're no longer that afraid of a loss of life because generally we're safe. And... The huge asterisk is we're not really safe because people die all the time. But if you're thinking of just like an everyday basis, we, we, we're elevating a public humiliation to the same level that we would elevate death. Mm. We're, we're equating the two, basically. Mm-hmm. And so public speaking, a failure at public, public speaking is sort of equated to the same thing as being killed i i definitely feel you on that i felt some stress over public speaking myself and and so what i want to do right now and you might hate me for this because it is it might be a tad comedic no i want to run you through a little uh quiz to determine what you're afraid of oh good um and this is coming from a very reputable source, John. 
Uh, how reputable? I'm not going to reveal that until the end of the quiz. All right, I'm ready. All right, so I'm going to be reading you the questions, and it's multiple choice, so I'll be reading you the choices. All right. All right. Number one. The person you just had a great hookup with texts you the very next day wondering if you're free to hang out. You agree to hang out without hesitation. I had a great time, so why not? I agree to hang but I'm a little nervous about this turning into something so quickly. Take forever to reply until I have a better idea of what this person is looking for in a relationship right now. So those are my three options? Those are your three options. Yeah, hang out. Fuck it. All right, so you agree to hang without hesitation. Hang without hesitation. That's uh, the name of my autobiography. Number two. When you see your friends who are in a happy long-term relationship, you think, I wish I wasn't so worried about starting a relationship. Hmm, I wonder when this is going to fall apart. Or, they're living the dream. Oh, it's B, absolutely. Alright, hmm, I wonder when this is going to fall apart. Number three. What are your biggest fears about starting a new relationship? All right. Failure. Having stronger feelings for them than they have for me. Or not getting an anniversary present. Okay, so it's clearly not C. All right. Because that's that's ridiculous. All right. Um, this one's kind of a thinker. All right, so you've got failure or having stronger feelings for them than they have for me. So I feel like statistically most relationships are going to fail. Okay. So I'm not terribly afraid of relationships failing. I've been pretty okay with breakups in the past. But I think that if you're in a relationship where you have stronger feelings for the other person than they have for you, then you're in a very compromised position and can be taken advantage of. So that one. All right. So in in general terms, a feel of being vulnerable. Yeah, the, the feel of being vulnerable. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. All right, number four. You've been seeing someone regularly for about three months now. When is the right time to define the relationship? Oh, to DTR? To DTR. All right, um, so is it is it ideally now, but we'll have to both come around to finding a way to talk about it? Uh, like two months ago? Or, er, why rush? Let's wait a little longer and so we're both absolutely sure, you know? Well, that's a that's a toughie, because I guess I can't know without being in the relationship. Uh, definitely not two months ago. Well, I don't know. Uh, my time to DTR is usually pretty quick. So maybe you're thinking ideally now. Because it's been about three months. Three months would be about right. I'd say I'd say three months is a is a good zone to DTR. All right, and that means determine the relationship, right? Yeah. All right. Number five. Do you think that a hookup can turn into a legit relationship? Of course, rarely, or maybe. Oh, of course. Of course. All right. Connect on the physical level. And then work the emotional stuff out later. Yeah, it's all part of a spectrum. All right. Number six. 
The idea of your crush turning into your boyfriend or girlfriend right this second is totally believable, terrifying, or wishful thinking. Hold on. What's up? I, I feel like these are looking for a very specific kind of fear. I can't put my finger on it. You've got you've got four more questions after this, Sean. Okay. So my my crush just turned into my boyfriend. Is that totally believable or terrifying or wishful thinking? Uh I'm gonna go with wishful thinking. I don't think crushes usually turn into anything. Alright. Number seven. Do you have trust issues? Yes. So you would go with, oh yeah, a ton of trust issues. Yeah, whatever the most, whatever the most is. That is the most. (laughs) All right. Number eight. Meeting the parents can be a pretty big relationship milestone. How do you feel about it? I'd probably be the one to suggest it in the first place, so I'm all about that. Ugh, I'd really rather not. It's not like we're getting married. Or, I'd be so nervous, but it could be okay, right? I'd say number three, because one is just way too gung-ho. Yeah, one is like, let's get married to the parents. Yeah, you don't want to marry, you don't want to marry the parents. No, you're not in a relationship with the parents. (laughs) Alright, number nine. What are you most likely to say? I don't really do relationships. There's plenty of fish in the sea. Or, life is too short to avoid potential lovers. Oh boy, I would definitely not say the last one. Right? Uh, Saying the last one is like rubbing olive oil on your chest. Ugh. (laughs) Like it's so gross. Um, Plenty of fish in the sea, I suppose. Alright, these are not really great options, I will admit. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure I would ever really say any of those, but that's the one that's Uh, closest to, I guess, what I believe. Yeah. And so we come to the final question. The person you've been seeing for a while casually refers to you as his or her girlfriend when introducing you to his or her friends. How do you react? Uh, well, someone that I've been seeing for a while calls me their girlfriend. What are the options? I'm pumped! It's nice to define the relationship without all the drama. Now I can call them by my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm surprised, but not totally opposed to it. It's definitely worth mentioning later, however. Or, badly. Um, when did we discuss this title? Uh, I'm gonna say, if someone I had been with started referring to me as their girlfriend, uh, I'd go with it, but we'd talk about it later. So, B. B. Alright. Congratulations, Sean. You have a reasonable fear of commitment. Oh, a reasonable? Thank God. A reasonable fear. Oh, and there's a description that goes with it. Shall I read it? Please. Okay. So the idea of being in a committed relationship isn't a total turnoff, but you have your concerns. You want a relationship to be as happy and positive as possible, but you know that more relationships fail than succeed. This is totally understandable and totally natural. 
Just go with what's natural when you're in a new relationship type of situation, but don't be too scared to get serious. Life is too short not to try a new relationship out for a spin. I really thought that was going to say life is too short to ignore potential lovers or whatever. <laughs> no, it, it, I don't know if that's actually a thing that people say. Uh, shall I reveal the super credible source for this? Oh, uh, what is it? Uh, Fangoria? Uh, Snopes? MyGirl.com Oh, my girl, the the industry leader in fear. Yes. Yep. I'm really, really glad to know that I only have a reasonable fear of commitment. Everyone who's been telling me I have an irrational fear of commitment is wrong. (laughs) I don't know what the scale is, because when I took it, I I apparently... Well, I was answering that random, but I had a great fear of commitment. Hey, I mean, that fear of commitment's pretty great. Now yeah. this is this is something about quizzes like this that I uh, that I have feelings about is uh, that was actually pretty spot on that description and I don't know if it's like a horoscope like fortune cookie thing where because you were invested you feel like everything's being paid back to you so it's super accurate that might be I I feel like the people the curators of the quiz at my.girl.com really put effort into that quiz because it, it, it wasn't one of those quizzes where you can totally tell what your result is going to be by, by answering a certain way. So I feel like they really put effort into that description at the end to describe anyone who has a reasonable fear of commitment. Yeah. I was really bamboozled by the whole thing right there until the end and all just kind of came together. Thanks my girl. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. It, it's it's my dot girl dot com. Thanks, MyDuckGirl.com. Um, so I thought that would be a little bit of fun to have with this, this fear bit, because, you, you know. That's a, you know fe- that's a fear worth discussing, because I think that fears of, of commitment and intimacy, I think those are kind of foundational fears that most people have in some degree. Yeah, I, I feel like, that's not a fear that stems from any bodily harm or fear of death or loss. You know, that's not a primal fear. This is a fear that's evolved over time through certain society, the, the way society is set up. Yeah, I mean, I think that my perfectly reasonable fear of commitment, uh, in my case, uh, just stems from the fact that society says that if I commit to someone, then I'm locked into all these heteronormative strictures. Yeah, there's a real, real pressure from society that says, you better pick right. Like, like even if you, if you examine the standard vows that people recite, it, it's until death do you part. Yeah, and then God is overall. Yeah, there, there's no wiggle room there. there there's no... Well, if it doesn't work out, you know, it's perfectly okay to seek legal options, to mutually decide to split. That's not in the vow. And it's not in the vow because that's not, of course, that's not romantic. You don't want to acknowledge the fact that this might fail at the moment that you're pledging your life to someone. I mean, let's talk about one of the scariest things of all, weddings. Weddings are terrifying. And I'm my, my girlfriend's going to be disheartened by hearing me say that. Uh, weddings are terrifying. I don't think anyone would disagree because weddings 
are kind of like psychological priming for an audience and for the people being wed that basically just say, hey, uh, we are going to present an illusion of eternity without yeah. while ignoring the complexities of human relationships. Yeah, it's an it's an oversimplification of the complex matrix of emotions that humans experience on a daily basis. It's trying to boil down a relationship to a a picture perfect, like picturesque type thing where you gather all your friends, you gather all your families to say, "This is us. This is who we're gonna be. We're in love with each other. We always will be. There's no problems on the horizon." I mean, I don't think anyone would want to sit there and watch uh, someone who's overseeing a wedding say, and till death do you part, or you know, whatever, because people change, and you would still love yourself and expect yourself to change, so the fact that you wouldn't expect your partner to change and for their feelings to change over time is unrealistic, so if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Mazel tov. That's the weird paradox of weddings, is that we don't want the truth. We don't want to acknowledge that there is room for doubt. I mean, look how expensive weddings are. Weddings are essentially massive pageants of fiction. And I love weddings. I, I really like weddings. I look forward to having one. Well, I look forward to getting one over with. Whoa. I don't like being in the spotlight. And a wedding is completely, let's put these people on pedestals and watch them and laugh with them, hopefully. But we have no idea what's in their minds. And on some level, we don't care what's in their minds as long as they present the picture-perfect moment that we've been thinking about for them this entire time they've been dating. Henry, I've got a spooky suggestion for your wedding. Is the spooky ex exception just to suck it up? No. The spooky suggestion is have a wedding, and then once, like, the ceremony is about to start, like, dim, like, flick the lights or whatever you do when the ceremony is about to start. I don't know. But when everyone sits down and they start looking where you guys are supposed to be, just have someone come out and, like, juggle or, like, do tricks, like a really good, like, street performer. And yeah. then, like, it's people are like, huh, what's happening? And then they're like focusing on that guy. And then, <laughs> while they're focusing on that guy, you guys get married in the back of the room while everyone is looking at him. And then, like, you clap and they turn around. It's like, oh, it happened. We got married. I, I honestly, I would love that. But that's not, you know, that's not the thing. What it's if. It's not. I thought about this, like, just getting married at, like, a justice of the peace, but then completely staging a wedding, like, getting all your friends together to try to make the most ridiculously opulent and dramatic wedding photos in history for a wedding that never happened. It, and, and that's the thing. We've, we've seen that before in, in popular media. Um, I don't know if you've seen The Office. Uh, no. Well, this is, who cares? Everyone's seen The Office. Um, I'm going to spoil this because The Office is more than five years old. Uh, please uh, rename the characters so people don't think Pim and Jam. All right. So Nim and Lamb, they're, they're going to 
You know that that popular YouTube video of like people dancing down the aisle during a wedding. Yeah. So that was big during the time of the Lim and Nam wedding episode, and so the characters Lim and Nam thought, "Oh God, our office is going to try to reenact that. That's going to be so tacky and terrible. They're going to ruin our big day." So they actually run off before the wedding happens, and they get married on a boat. Oh, or should I say they get married on a float? A float. A float? Oh, I see. Spoilers. To disguise the spoilers. Yeah, I see. Um, and so then when it comes time to the actual wedding, they don't care what happens during the ceremony because to them, they've already done it. They've already gotten married. The ceremony is now just sort of a formality. I know for a fact that my girlfriend does not listen to this podcast, so I am confident in saying that I am 100% down with a sham marriage. I, I, th- I think there's... Because here's how I view it. The the promise to be there for another person should take place between those people. Yeah. Any sort of outward acceptance or outward pressure, you can fulfill that by ha- but 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 you do that secondary. That that's like at the back of my mind. The the my, my First and foremost concerns are with the person, the, like my, my significant other. There's a reason why we call it a significant other, because everything else is secondary, including outward pressure, family pressure. All of that comes second to the actual person. Yeah, love is always greater than pageantry. Exactly. Or should and, be. And, oh, wait, what? Or should be. You're right. Or should be. And I, I feel like, and I'm going to go through with a big wedding, a showy wedding, a, a family and friends wedding, because I care so much about my significant other, because that's what she wants, and that that trumps what I want. Yeah, I mean... But I still can't get over my fear of being on the spot, all these people who think they know me who have no idea what I really am feeling and thinking, perceiving me as being something when really I'm completely something else. And I'm going to get over it because that's what we're supposed to do. Hey man, give the sham wedding a thought. Best of both worlds. I've tried to float it. (laughs) I've tried to float it past. But, uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's, It's a fear... I'm not afraid of a lot, but I'm afraid of being presented in a way that I'm not. I don't know what, I don't know how to get over that other than just to do it and get over it and live what I perceive to be as a sham. So I suppose by having a reasonable fear of commitment, we can say that we both have reasonable fears of of pageantry. I really think that's it. I don't want to be trotted out in front of other people to be presented in a way that I don't personally identify. And that might be wah-wah, you know, get-over-yourself bullshit. But as a person who struggles with happiness, who struggles with personal identity, it, it gets increasingly difficult to do things that I don't identify with. I mean, that's what a relationship is if it's one that works, is it's just two people 
making their identity as part of the same package and doing whatever it takes to make that work. Yeah. Shh. My my phone went off. But um yeah, I, I it, it's it's supposed to be a relationship at its core essence is compromise. It's two people trying to act as one, which is in itself a paradox, but you make certain sacrifices to make sure you get as close as possible. Which, of course, doesn't... That's a scary train of thought for some people, because some people allow the uh, the axiom... Well, the, the like axiomatic expression that a relationship is about compromise, they think that to mean that they should be pushovers, but you only have so many tomorrows, and you're building up your yesterdays, and you don't want to waste sunrises being a person you're not. And this kind of plays into this weird social pressure fear that I think we can actually tie back to a primal fear of loss. Because time is a social construct. Time doesn't exist on its own. Um, but we can perceive a loss of time as something that is valuable and that we don't want to experience. We don't want to waste time. Henry, I'm going to blow this fear thing wide open. What's up? What if all fear is an aversion to loss? I, I honestly think it is. Because if you think about fear, if you think about the Wikipedia definition that I read where it's a risk to bodily harm or life, that's a fear of loss. A fear of loss of ability of your body or a fear of loss as in your potential life. What I'd like to do if we have some time. We got plenty of time. I would like both of us to divulge our like deepest most primal fear simple ones not complicated ones like fears of commitment how, how do you get simpler than a fear uh, you mean like boiling down our fear to like the most basic element no like saying you have a fear of spiders or whatever oh but like the the but, most iconic like phobia fear you have like claustrophobia arachnophobia something like that bo- boil it down to something that's easily recognizable no 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 i just say i want both of us to be like i have a fear of spiders or i have a fear of octopuses or whatever one of our bigger fears is and then i want to see if we can reliably connect that to loss okay so mine i guess i'll go first Go first, because I'm, I need to think. My biggest, easiest fear to, like, talk about is I have a fear of big underwater things. Not necessarily, like, deep water, though I don't like being in it. But the idea of, like, big creatures living in water freaks me out so much. So, so much. Like, so, so not thassalophobia, which is the fear of open water, but, like, a fear of, like leviathans a fear specifically of just really i mean whales are part of it i'm just really creeped out by things that are larger than me that exist in the water and they don't even have to be alive because here's a story okay uh you've played the elder scrolls morrowind i actually never have and i feel bad about it it's one of the best games ever made but i know (laughs) there are these dwarf ruins in morrowind called dwemer ruins And there is a prolonged uh, sequence 
in that game where you have to dive into water and go through this like big underwater section because the the game is massive and there are a bunch of ways to because it's great anyway uh in this dwemer ruin thing i went in this body of water and it's very dark and i think the idea is that you're supposed to have like a see in the dark spell or something that i didn't have so i cranked the brightness on my monitor all the way up of course, because, I mean, who's going to judge you? Single-player game. Which still didn't really work because of the color grading, so it was like I was just looking through a fog, but I was deep underwater. And I was I was moving along, and I looked around, and I noticed that I was in an area that wasn't quite the shape of a cave. And I looked, and you are in this massive underground statue garden of these huge statues that are way bigger than you wow and those things were it surprised me so much and it it struck at this primal fear that i have so hard and this is the only time i've ever done this i screamed and fell backwards out of my chair and hurt myself (laughs) because of the visual representation of a video game yeah like a, a video game just like because it was so unexpected and my my understanding of what was happening was so immediate that I was like, I'm underwater and there's a huge thing under here that's way bigger than me. And it immediately horrified me. And it wasn't even a live creature. I mean, I think about, like, shipwrecks and they creep me out. I don't like the idea of objects deep in the water, specifically objects that are bigger than me. So, So you have no problem with skyscrapers. No, because I have no they're... problems with like big things. I'm not agoraphobic at all. I think they're they're interesting. But 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 something being underwater being bigger than you suddenly scares you. Uh yeah, I I I don't know what it is, but I think I can I think I can think of where it comes from. I I, I might I might venture a guess because if we think of water, especially in video games, but even more so in real life, there's a lack of ability in water. Mm-hmm. We can't do the things we do on land and water because it's it's water. Uh, physics are affected by water. Your, your force isn't as strong. Yeah, it's it's not my element. Exactly. We we don't live in water. We live on land. What we're land based creatures, so we don't feel comfortable in water typically. And I think so, one thing that that gets me about it is the idea that. If something is in water and it's bigger than I am, then it's something that is primally bigger and more powerful than me. And if it exists in water, I have no hopes of understanding it. Yeah, it's sort of like you're conceding. If the thing is bigger than me and this is its domain, it wins. Yeah, I mean, it's not even a fear of of death because, like I said, it's structures. I think it's just a fear that I don't know... The intentions of something I can't possibly understand. And you can't understand it because it lives in an, in an environment that's completely separate from your own. And I think that that lack of understanding, uh, that, that uncertainty, is what triggers the fear response in me. Because I don't know what something like that would make of me or do to me or, or think of me. Ugh. I'm actually getting freaked out talking about it. Well, I, I think I feel like this comes from a fear of difference because a, a, a popular theory 
of like why people are afraid of spiders is because they move so differently from us. We can't relate to how they move. So that kind of extends to we can't relate to how they think. They're alien to us. Yeah, I mean, uh, some people have a big aversion to like centipedes. Because they move so differently. Mm-hmm. And, and that must be, like, that. that's a different, that's an evolved type of fear. That, that's not the primal fear of, lo- fear of loss. It, it's, a, it's a nuanced fear of difference. So maybe it isn't all tied to loss and we don't actually understand fear. I don't, I don't think, everyone, like, tries to separate fears from, like, rational to irrational fears. I think all fear, at some level, is, quote, irrational, unquote, meaning we don't always understand why we're afraid of something. There's, fear, at at some point, is encoded into our DNA, and I mean, I I would describe my fear of things under the water as largely irrational because I've been scuba diving and snorkeling and I've been in the ocean and gone on like, uh, like I'll go in like rivers and stuff. And I was in, uh, I was in Mexico and like, I'll go down into underwater caverns and stuff. And that's fun. That's cool. I don't mind. Wait, you would go into underwater caverns? Not if they were deep, but like the ones that just kind of go under and then come back up. Yeah, I'm fine with that, kind of. I don't like to stay in there for long at all, and I have to have a scuba tank because one time someone tried to get me to do it when I had just a snorkel, and the thought of it terrified me. I can't even do the scuba tank, but that that's... Maybe that just speaks to my personal courage. Maybe. I don't know. I, the fact that uh, snorkeling gives me, like, I've snorkeled before, but snorkeling gives me pause because I don't snorkel right. And so water gets into the tube and then it's just like, or, or I'm just panicking because I can't breathe normally and that might have to have a tie to my asthma because I, I'm always conscious of my breathing. There's a lot of, I'm more neurotic than I lead on. Speaking of those neuroses, Henry, what you afraid of? Fucking alligators, John. Oh, shit. Jesus Christ, alligators. Um, they are a recurring nightmare of mine. Uh, whenever I'm in a dream and I'm in a body of water, without a doubt, a hundred percent, there are goddamn alligators in that water, no matter what that water is. Have you seen that video of that uh, that farm in Louisiana that's got an alligator that's like the size of a house? I don't like thinking about alligators because they are the perfect... The, they're the perfect species, if, you, if we want to be honest. Uh, the interesting thing to me about alligators is that they are one of the few animals that was like, nah... There aren't enough outside pressures to make me keep evolving. Yeah, they they haven't evolved in thousands of years. They've 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 survived multiple extinctions, like the KT extinction, etc. Um, and they technically never die of natural causes. That's a little known fact. Uh, if you keep an alligator long enough, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. They die of the inability to feed themselves. They can't eat enough to to sustain their body mass. So I guess if you had an alligator that you just... Because if an alligator is in captivity, it generally dies of sickness. 
Yeah. It, well, it dies of sickness or it dies of wasting because it, it typically, you're not, you're feeding it at a certain rate and it needs a lot more food than you can provide or you think you should provide because they just, they keep growing. They're basically immortal. They don't die of natural causes. They're, they're the apex predator of their environment. Now, Henry, <laughs> much like you, what I'm going to do is try to take kind of a deep dive on this and try to figure out where this fear could come from. Uh, and I want to be specific. It's not alligators in general. It's being in the water with alligators. Specifically being in the water with alligators. I am not afraid of an alligator on land. I am afraid if I am in the water with an alligator. So I think that this fear stems from you not wanting to be killed by an alligator. <laughs> I, I think there are multiple layers, but I think you're, you are boiling it down to a specific point. And uh, I think the water thing plays into that, because that's just, that's a playground for the alligator. Yeah, no, no, like, if there's anywhere an alligator wants to be, it's in the water. Because they love it, because they're great at it, because they're great at everything. I mean, if there's anything an alligator wants to be, it's digesting you. Yeah, and, like, they've got one of the strongest bites in history. Uh, one of the uh, more fascinating things about alligators to me, in addition to the other fascinating alligator fact, is uh, alligators don't have that they're more afraid of you than you are of it thing, and they're not angry. Uh, they don't attack out of malice, generally. If an alligator is hungry, it'll attack you, because it wants to eat you. Yeah, no, no, they're not like bears. They're not like any other sort of predator. Well, maybe, they're maybe similar to lions. Uh, because it's basically like, if they want to, they will. A, a bear won't attack a human if, 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 unless they're starved. Yeah, a bear typically. is, if it has to, it might. An alligator is, if it wants to, it will. And, and like, at a, at a certain level, cause we, people have experienced bonds with alligators they, they've they've experienced lasting friendships with alligators and that demonstrates that they're not like every other reptile they're not as brain dead as they seem yeah they're uh they're pretty smart and and, and i i really like if i want to boil this down to a level that's translatable into other fears like, I keep going on and on about all of the positives of being an alligator. I think it might stem from a weird inferiority complex where I feel like the alligator is better than me. Uh, well, Henry, let me ask you a question. Uh, this is going to be a quick quiz. Okay. Um, so first question, I'll read the options to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, are you the ultimate killing machine? A, yes... B, no. I'm gonna go with no, I'm not. Alright, interesting, interesting. Uh, number two. Uh, can you kill whatever you want whenever? A, yes, B, no. T this is a weird question if I think about it. Give me a gun and I would say yes. But given my moral opposition to guns, I will say no. Okay, well that was option C, so you did pick a good one. Okay. Uh, so this is the third and final question. Uh, you think you're so tough, what do you think about an alligator with a gun? 
I'm dead. That's it. That that's the end game. All of the options just say run. <laughs> well, I pick option run the hardest. Oh, good. That's option D. What are my results? Oh, uh, you are very inferior. You have an irrational inferiority to alligators. <laughs> I, but it, they're... I don't know. Oh, hold on. It, it, it keeps going? Yeah, okay. Uh, by irrational, we don't mean that it's irrational to think that you are inferior to alligators. We mean to say that the thought of you being even comparable to an alligator is irrational. <laughs> That's funny. But I feel like it does stem to from from a larger sort of problem that I have is imagining myself stacking up to anyone around me. In a way that's comparable, but that's getting psycho, psychoanalytical, and, and really it's just, if I'm in the water with an alligator, it has the advantage over me 1,000 times out of a billion, wait, what, no, a hundred, it wins. I guess one thing that we can take away from this is our fears are so multifaceted, because even if we, if we track it back, uh, much like the... Description from my.girl.com's uh, quiz. I can see uh, shades of inferiority in my fear. Yeah, I, I feel like fears are not... that They don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a person. And a person, of course, is multifaceted. So it stands to reason the fear would stem from multiple reasons and not just... The initial primal one. Fears might be like fetishes. Like, why do you have it? Fucking, I don't know. Yeah, like, for a long time, I thought a fear of alligators was like a regional thing. But we, like, I went to the zoo with a bunch of my classmates in, like, elementary school. And we all saw the same thing. We all saw the alligators in their their swamp exhibit and... None of the other ones that I know have recurring nightmares about alligators. So I think it really comes down to a weird individual bias, like in a similar vein of like the wand chooses the wizard, the fear chooses the person. And the alligator chooses you. God damn it. Don't say that. (laughs) Do alligators hiss? Yeah. What? Yeah. When their mouth is open, they're like... Well, that kind of makes them adorable, but they probably don't have their mouth open in the water unless they're trying to eat you. Yeah, uh, that's a it's it's bad news bears if an alligator has its mouth open. The good news is all of that all of that bite power is only on the way down. Uh, I've learned that they have no lifting power, so if you can get on an alligator's mouth, you essentially win. Uh, I did read that. It's kind of on the fence because sometimes an alligator will be strong enough to uh, to break free of that, and sometimes they won't. Young alligators can't. Older alligators, maybe. Old older alligators have been around the block. They they know they know the score. They know they know their way around a hand. But also considering it's literally your only option for survival, give it a shot. Yeah, why not? Or just. Just don't be around alligators. Yeah, that's tough <laughs> for some people. Choose that. <laughs> yeah, if you can, if you can make a choice, don't live with alligators. 
Uh, I, I recently saw there's apparently a uh, a Florida person, a Florida man, if you will, who gives tours and a, he's befriended a bunch of alligators. So he just jumps in the water with them and they come up to him and he pets them. And I'm just like, what the ever loving hell is this? Who is this demon? And then every fifth tour, he just feeds one of them to the alligators to maintain their trust. Exactly. He just feeds one of the tour members and saying, this is the dark pact that we have created. I serve thee, master. And then all the uh, all the people on the tour boat just start, like, clapping. And then all the alligators, like, rise up on their hind legs and start clapping. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's, a total, it's a total nightmare. Yeah, it sounds it. I have something to tell you, Henry. What do you have to tell me, John? This podcast has actually kind of creeped me out. Well, I, I feel like I feel like any discussion of fear has that possibility. Like we can't help but imagine our fears in a way that we put them in in some sort of reality. Does that make sense? Oh fuck! What? The Eileen Moore. It was alligators. <laughs> Go fuck yourself, man. <laughs> it was like a rogue wave full of alligators yeah. that just devoured the bodies, bones and all. And and they wrote they wrote the, the, the logs. That's why that guy was crying. Because he he was an alligator. Yes, alligator tears. <laughs> Oh, man. No, but I feel like our fears on some level are created by us. So if we talk about our fears, we're recreating them. That's why I steeled myself of alcohol before this this podcast, John. Liquid courage, they say. Yeah, I I doubled down on that, and I thought if we're going to be talking about fears... I'm going to be prepared. I mean, whenever I have to confront something scary, I tend to drink. Yeah, it's a common it's a common thing. If you have to give a presentation, you might take a shot of whiskey beforehand just to loosen up your personality a bit and to be more personable. Or like if you're going for a job interview. Yeah, you might take a small small shot of whiskey or if you're going to go babysit some kids. I don't think that's acceptable in that case, but you might take, like, the smallest shot of whiskey. A little thimble of whiskey. A thimble of whiskey. But, no, I, I feel like I feel like people need to, to be more accepting of that. They're like, hey, yeah, things are scary. There's potential loss on the line. And that's a, a, a common cause of fear. So, yes, here. Take from our reserve of whiskey for everyone. I think that we need to have water coolers full of whiskey on every street corner. Yeah, why not? Well, that might be a bad idea because I might tend to... You might, you might run into enabling alcoholics. That That's a bad thing. Uh, that's a fear of mine, having my alcoholism enabled. Oh, really? No. <laughs> I am afraid of substances, but that's a that's a discussion for another podcast. You mean like next week's podcast? Exactly like next week's podcast, Henry. Yeah, I maybe 
maybe next week we discuss more of our personal fears, but I feel like we need to venture into more spooky and scary topics. Maybe there's a story. Maybe we have a, an urban legend story every week. Maybe that's a thing we do. The future is uncertain, and that should scare you. And like all fears, uncertainty is key. Key to this podcast. And key to everything. Yeah, well, so we're going to keep experimenting with this, bringing you new spooky content, and, like any good paper, we outlined our thesis statement first. And our thesis statement is fear. Exactly. Fear us. Or just fear the things we talk about. Don't actually fear us, because if you fear us, you won't listen. But listen to the things we say, but fear them. And it'll be a scary short-form essay where the first talks about the thesis statement, the next two are supporting paragraphs, and then finally, the conclusion. Bum, bum, bum. Oh man, I'm I'm real glad to be out of the scary zone, Henry. Oh, are we out of the scary zone, John? Uh, we, or is this, oh. or is the scary zone just taking a moment's reprieve? We are stuck in the eye of a scary storm, and I'm gonna take this opportunity to hit you with some social media. Well, I'll set up that social media by saying, let us know how we're doing with this themed month of scares we we really want to hear your feedback on this because we're doing something new and we want to know if you like this or not yeah caring is important and i want to have a month of caring a month of scary cares oh scaring scare cares like like care bears oh go with the social media plugs so, if you want to send us a very short, scary story, you can reach us at ZCPCWHJ on Twitter.com. That stands for Henry. Zoinks! People! ZCPC? ZCPC. Zoinks! Cometh people carrying weapons. How joyful. Oh, it, it took a turn there at the end that I wasn't expecting. It creeped my skin off. Yeah, because the person talking is looking forward to the confrontation. And if you want to send us a longer scary story, and I mean that, you can send us scary stories if you want to, and maybe we'll read them on next week's scary podcast at zero credits is a podcast at gmail.com. Email is the scariest form of communication. There's no maybe about it, John. If you send us a scary story, we will read it. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. If you send us so many scary stories that we have to momentarily increase our podcast hosting plan for all the bandwidth for all those scares, we'll do we it. We will do it! We will do we it! Said, we will do it! We said it at the same time. I'm sorry. And if you want to engage with us in the true waking nightmare that is Facebook.com, you can search for Zero Credits Podcast in the search bar, and you'll find it. And we're on iTunes. iCloud's pretty scary. Uh, you don't want to you don't want to put your personal information on the cloud because uh, it's a storm cloud. Uh, so we're on iTunes. Like, comment, and subscribe on iTunes. Tell your friends. And we stream video games, and maybe it'd be a good month to stream something scary at twitch.tv slash zero credits 
There's a lot of scary games out there, John. Maybe we should pick one and just go ahead and do it. Yeah, maybe we should just, like, eat some cucumber slices and play Outlast. Maybe, maybe I should have bought the Humble Bundle with Outlast in it. We'll look into it. We'll look into it. <laughs> but uh, I think that's pretty much it for social media, unless you have something particularly scary to leave them off with. I'll just leave them off with this. Maybe, maybe, perhaps, if you engage with us in this month of frightened times, maybe you'll be entered into a a scary contest where you stand to win some of our favorite scary items, like maybe a favorite horror novel or horror DVD movie thing. Maybe that's going to happen. More details will be forthcoming on our social media. More details on our social media for the Zero Credits 2017 Skeleton Test. Skeleton Test. That is now the official name because that's how we roll here. Wait, Henry, did... Do you feel that? What do I... I, Wait, wait, I, I, I think the scares are coming back. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Bolt the door. Uh, uh, bolt noise. Uh, hold the door. Uh, God is overall. Grab your oil skin. Uh, uh, is that a is that a wave of alligators? 